Romans chapter 15, we'll start reading at verse 25. But now I'm going to Jerusalem serving the saints. For Macedonia and Achaia have been pleased to make a contribution for the poor among the saints in Jerusalem. Yes, they were pleased to do so, and they are indebted to them. For if the Gentiles have shared in their spiritual things, they are indebted to minister to them also in material things. Therefore, when I have finished this and have put my seal on this fruit of theirs, I will go on by way of you to Spain. And I know that when I come to you, I will come in the fullness of the blessing of Christ. Now I urge you, brethren, by our Lord Jesus Christ and by the love of the Spirit to strive together with me in your prayers to God for me, that I may be delivered from those who are disobedient in Judea, and that my service for Jerusalem may prove acceptable to the saints, so that I may come to you in joy by the will of God and find refreshing rest in your company. Now the God of peace be with you all. Amen. Amen. We come once again this morning to this closing section of the greatest letter ever written, Paul's epistle to the Romans. And we began last week to look at these final verses of chapter 15 where Paul talks about the gift that he and some others were about to take up to Jerusalem. And we saw last time that this gift was a lot more important both to Paul and to the Lord than what we would tend to think. Uh, Two whole chapters of 2 Corinthians are taken up talking about this gift, and actually the whole last third of the book of Acts from chapter 19, uh, partway through the chapter, verse 21 of chapter 19, all the way to the end of Acts, Chapter 28, in somewhere or another, has to do with this trip to Jerusalem, uh, Paul's uh, settled conviction in his heart that he was supposed to go. He knew, he says, I go bound in the Holy Spirit. He knew he was supposed to go, but then all these warnings and preparations that God gave to him, and then uh, what happened to him when he got to Jerusalem and how it was that the Romans took him as a prisoner, and then finally how he got to Rome and what happened when he got to Rome. All of that is it's actually a third of the book of Acts that deals with this trip up to Jerusalem. Uh, why was this gift so important? Well, we looked at four things last time. First of all, the saints at Jerusalem were poor. They really, really were. They'd had a need. And Paul was compassionate about that. He was concerned about that. And uh, the early church was concerned about it, so they took up this offering. But secondly, this was an opportunity for Paul to bring home to the Gentiles just how indebted they were to Jerusalem uh, for the spiritual blessings that they had received. And so, uh, as he said back in chapter 11, he didn't want them to be high-minded. He wanted them to be grateful and thankful. And there were always these tensions, you know, between the Gentile Christians and the Jewish Christians. And then that was the third reason. It was an opportunity for the Jewish Christians to be knit together in love with these 
Gentile Christians, these faraway churches that they had heard about, and these churches were prospering, and we can be sure that there was some skepticism in a lot of the Jewish people. What's really, what's going on out there? You know, we've heard Paul's uh, downplaying and trampling on the law and on the Old Testament, and they heard all kinds of rumors. You can be sure, I mean, um, we've experienced this many times where stories have gone out about people, and we find out they're not true at all or they're twisted in some way. So who knows what in the world the Jews back at Jerusalem, the Jewish Christians, had heard about Paul. And uh, that comes up when he comes back to Jerusalem. They've heard all these things about him. And um, so we can be sure there was some tension there, some skepticism about these Gentile Christians. And uh, what could be more healing than for them to send a gift out of their poverty, a lot of them, they, they gathered up what they had and sent a gift uh, down to Jerusalem. It really speaks volumes about uh, Paul's greatness, that he was so concerned about church unity that he went to great lengths to gather that offering to take. That was the first step. And then he was willing to risk his life to go down there um, to deliver that gift personally to Jerusalem. And then finally, the final reason that it was so important, we saw that Paul right here in Romans 15 talks about his offering up of the Gentiles to God. He viewed his ministry as an act of worship. And uh, you remember back in, it was back actually in the temple that the Lord had first spoken to him and he says, up, get out of Jerusalem, they're not going to receive your testimony. I will send you, quote, far away to the Gentiles. Well, he had been sent far away to the Gentiles. That whole region, he said, from Jerusalem round about to, to Illyricum all the way up there to northern Greece, Macedonia. And he had seen churches raised up in all those places. And he says his ministry was completed there. So now before he launches out into a whole new area, which was Spain, he wants to make... One last trip back to Jerusalem, offering up what God has done uh, through this representative gift of the Gentiles. Uh, and uh, it's really amazing. This gift came from people who had been in utter darkness. And if you, uh, if you remember even at Ephesus, all the magic arts and witchcraft and everything they had there, thousands of dollars worth of books, uh, black magic and what have you. At Corinth, think of what God did at Corinth, the most corrupt place you could imagine. And so here he is coming back. These people are now new creatures in Christ. They're, uh, they're out, called out of darkness and into marvelous light, and they're giving this gift back uh, to the Jerusalem church. And it's, I think in Paul's mind, it was, really was an act of worship before he launched out into a new mission field. Think of what it was like. J.G. Payton was a missionary to the New Hebrides, uh, cannibals, and uh, he tells what it's like to celebrate communion, the blood and body of Christ, with those who had been cannibals before, but now they were new creatures. That's the kind of thing that was happening here. 
people uh, people uh, that who had had unbelievable miracles take place in their heart, and they're sending a gift back up to Jerusalem. Well, we're almost ready for chapter 16, uh, but before we do that, there are some things in these verses that I don't want to just pass over. And so I want to bring out three things today to focus our attention on. First of all, confidence of the Lord's blessing in ministry. Secondly, the need for fervent prayer. And thirdly, the mystery of providence. So first of all, confidence in the Lord's blessing in ministry. This We see this in verse 29. Paul says, I know that when I come to you, I will come in the fullness of the blessing of Christ. What a confidence that is. What to be able to say, I know that when I come, God's going to be there wonderfully blessing. And how could Paul be so certain of this? I feel like the Lord showed me the answer to this years ago through some real life experiences. In short, the answer is this. We can be confident of the Lord's help and blessing, first of all, A, when we've been longing for many years to see someone. When there's that longing. Uh, Paul had a longing to see these Christians. And then secondly, when our desire is to be a blessing to them spiritually. It says in one eleven, he wanted to impart to them some spiritual gift that they might be established. And then see when we've been making mention of them in our prayers unceasingly. It says that back in one nine, that we might be allowed to come see them. And then D, when we've been often hindered from coming because we've been trying to do God's will somewhere else. In that kind of situation, we can be sure that when we do get to come, we'll have the Lord's blessing. This doesn't have to be quite the same. Um, it may not have been years that we're longing for somebody or praying for them, but if, if that is there, if there's a longing and a burden and a love, Paul loved those Roman Christians. And he wanted to help them, wanted to bless them, and he'd been praying for them continually. And uh, when that's there, we can be sure that God's going to help and help us to minister. This is true. It's not just for preachers but it's true for our any of us if you know there's two ways to go about things i i saw when i was uh, right after i got out of college i had this tremendous really basically a burden of guilt that i needed to witness to different people that i worked with and what have you and i forced the door open because i felt guilty that i hadn't witnessed to them well, it was terrible, but it's a totally different thing if you start praying for that person until you begin to feel love in your heart and you have a genuine longing to share the gospel with them and you have a genuine longing to help them. Then it's totally different, isn't it? And there's a sense of blessing. And this is true not only if we're ministering to others, but even in, in other areas too. I Years ago when Dick and I were in Germany, uh, we were longing to go down to Labrie there in Switzerland where Francis Schaeffer was and get in on some of that. And we actually, uh, 
I kind of, I remember thinking, well, it's probably just kind of a selfish motivation. And then we got a letter from our friend Baylor there in Iowa telling us, you need to go down there. And we just had a confidence, God wants us to do this. And uh, we were longing to go and praying that we could go and wanted to get away. And we knew that it wasn't just selfish. And uh, week after week, some need would come up where we were hindered. And the need would be something where we felt like, I can't leave here yet because there's this problem, there's this need, I want to try to help these people here. That's the same thing we saw that was hindering Paul from going to Rome. He had different things in the area where he was ministering that he felt, I just can't do it yet. And he really wanted to, and he couldn't. I remember uh, week after week that happened, and I really started kind of getting mad about it in my own heart. It's like, why, why didn't God let us do this? And finally the way cleared, and we went down there to Switzerland on the train to be part of that ministry there. And we got there, I think it was on a Thursday, and one of the students, it was like a, I don't know what you'd call it, but there were students there at Labrie. One of the students said, wow, he said, you, this is incredible because we're, we're students here. We never have met Francis Schaefer ourselves. And he's been on a preaching trip in America, and he just came in last night in the middle of the night. So one minute more, you know, or sooner, we would have missed out totally. And it turns out that uh, God was hindering so that he could fulfill that desire better. And that's the way it was with Paul. We'll see that, Lord willing, as we go on here. But this is the way God is, and what a blessed time it was, and I've seen this in other areas where, and so we need to be, and when we think of these conferences coming up, I'm supposed to go down to Nicaragua in a couple weeks, and the fellowship conference coming up, it's time we should be praying that God would give us a longing in the heart for the people. That's the thing. Paul was longing for them, praying for them, and kept being hindered by by the will of God when we have the will when God's will keeps us from doing something else that's God's will we know that when the time comes it's going to be a blessing so uh, confidence of the Lord's blessing and ministry secondly the need for fervent prayer Paul speaks of this in verse 30 He says, I urge you, brethren, by our Lord Jesus Christ and by the love of the Spirit to strive together with me in your prayers to God for me. Paul appeals by the Lord Jesus Christ and by the supernatural love that that the Holy Spirit had put in, that puts in the heart of one Christian for another Christian. Uh, that they would strive together with him in prayer. And this word strive comes from the Greek word agonizomahi, which is agonize. And um, it means to fight, labor fervently, or strive. Lord Jesus, you remember, said strive to enter at the narrow gate, agonize to enter at the narrow gate. 
for many will seek to enter and will not be able. If you don't really know the Lord, can't take a laid-back attitude about it. You've got to agonize to enter at the narrow gate. Strive to enter at the narrow gate. And then the same word comes up uh, when Paul is talking to Timothy. He says to fight the good fight of faith. The word translated fight there both times is words related to this word agonize, strive. Struggle and strive the good striving of faith. The, the Christian life involves some intense battles. And if we give the impression that, you know, now I'm happy all the day and I'll never have to face anything agonizing, that's wrong. Strive, he says, fight the good fight of faith. Really some hard things, aren't there, that God lets his children go through and puts them through. But what I want to focus on here right now is that on several occasions, Paul uses the word in relation to prayer. First of all, here in verse 30, he asks these Romans to strive together with him concerning his trip to Jerusalem. And it was uh, no small thing that he's doing this because he hadn't even met a lot of them. And he is asking them because of the love of the Spirit and because of what Christ has done in his example, uh, to strive together with him, not just say a prayer. He's not saying, say a prayer for me. He says, please, strive together with me. In other words, he's coming up on, he's walking into the jaws of death. And he's saying, "I I need prayer. I need you all to really pray for me. I need you to strive together with me. And, um, carry this burden it's amazing isn't it how little we often feel the weight of other people's urgent prayer requests now not all prayer requests are urgent but some of them they're urgent it's like you know and we know of some situations where somebody's out in a situation where they could be killed and those are times that we, we ought to, and I was thinking at our prayer meetings, when somebody sends an urgent request, we ought to ask God to help us to strive. And there's nothing wrong with crying out to God and striving until we can strive. And uh, we can do that together and we can do it alone. Ask God to burden us and help us to strive for others in prayer. Colossians 1, 29 to 2, 2, Paul is speaking there and he says, For this purpose also I labor, striving, there's the word again, according to his power, which mightily works within me. For I want you to know how great a struggle, there it is again, the same agonizing, how great a struggle I have on your behalf. So he's having a great struggle on behalf of these people. And for those who are at Laodicea and for all those who have not personally seen my face. So here he is burdened for people that he's never met to the point that he's striving and agonizing for them in prayer. It's an amazing thing. He knew what it was to strive in prayer for people he had never met because of the love of the Spirit that he felt for them. And we see from these verses that we cannot do that on our own. He says, I'm striving according to His power that works in me mightily. And I think one of the things, again, as we 
gather for prayer and as we do pray is we ought to start out by asking God to empower us by the Spirit. Paul says praying at all times in the Holy Spirit. So ask Him for for direction, ask Him for empowerment. I think I've shared this before. I've experienced this, uh, experienced it one time in an unusual way there in Romania. A group of us were praying. And God came and empowered those prayers. It's like it's not something man can do. Like a, uh, the, the thought that I had was like a fire hydrant. You see them open up these fire hydrants and the water is gushing out of there. That's the way it seemed to be. The Holy Spirit putting a burden upon us for others. So at the very least, we can ask Him. We can make ourselves available. Pour out our hearts before Him. Ask Him. We don't have to work something up. We just need to ask God to help us on these things, especially a lot of times we don't know how important something might be, and just ask Him to help us to pray accordingly to what He knows. Here's another one, Colossians 4. This is at the end of the same book, uh, 12 and 13. Epaphras, who is one of your number, a bond slave of Jesus Christ, sends you his greetings, always laboring earnestly. Now, this is the same word, always striving for you in his prayers that you may stand perfect and fully assured in all the will of God. That's something we can pray for one another. Whenever you think of it, you think praying for this or that person in the church, you think, Lord, I'm praying that they might stand perfect and fully assured in all the will of God. So in other words, uh, whatever God's will is for that person right now, that they'd be there in the center of that. And um, then he says, uh, um, that you may stand perfect and fully assured in all the will of God. For I bear him witness that he has a deep concern for you and for those who are in Laodicea and Heropolis. So this fellow, Epaphras, we don't know anything about him, but he was always laboring earnestly for these people there, uh, habitually striving for others whom he loved. So there ought to be times, at the very least we can say this, there ought to be times when we're more than just saying prayers. We're really pouring our heart out to God and, and striving in prayer for others. That always happens in times of revival when the Holy Spirit's poured out. And I've been reading uh, some accounts of that, and uh, what you see is hours and hours of prayer where people pour out their hearts to God, and they feel like uh, one account I read they uh, would meet at 7 in the morning before the church service to pray, and, they, and when God began to move and the Holy Spirit was present, they said, we, we can't keep coming this late. There's just too much to pray about. So they were coming at 6 every, every Sunday morning. And uh, that was back in the 1905 revival. Well, we can ask. We can surely be aware of this need to be striving in some situation. Thirdly, I want us to look at the mystery of providence. What is providence? Well, providence is God's perfect ordering of all events, directing all of history according to His sovereign will, and often in ways that we don't understand or expect. 
in order to work out His gracious purposes. So God often orders events in ways that we can't understand. His providence often seems dark and foreboding and fearful and mysterious. Um, We've certainly seen that in the account of how Paul finally came to Rome. And that's why I want to take some time on it here. First of all, uh, he became a Roman prisoner, which is not what you'd want normally. And he became a Roman prisoner not because of anything that he had done wrong. It wasn't, uh, Rome had nothing against him, no charges against him. Uh, but it was in order to protect him from the Jews. I'll just give you one example. This actually happened more than once. Acts 23.10 tells us that the commander was, quote, afraid Paul would be torn in pieces by them and ordered the troops to go down and take him away from them by force and bring him into the barracks. And then to keep him from being killed by an ambush, they had to hurry him out of Jerusalem, take him to Caesarea, which is out on the eastern coast of the Mediterranean, to stand trial before Felix. And Felix never did anything with him, kept him for two years. Felix was replaced by Festus. And um, Paul ended up standing trial before Festus. And at that point, uh, Jews came over from Jerusalem, tried to uh, accuse him and get him back in Jerusalem. Now, if he had gone back to Jerusalem, he would have been dead. So at that point, Paul was forced to appeal to Caesar. You remember that? He says, I appeal to Caesar. It wasn't a mistake. He had to do that. But do uh, you remember what, the, uh, what Festus said to him? You have appealed to Caesar. To Caesar you shall go. What's that mean? You're on your way to Rome. <laughs> Look at how all this goes together. And so God's way of getting Paul, we're talking about the mystery of providence. God's way of ensuring that Paul got to Rome without being killed was to make him a Roman prisoner and surround him by Roman soldiers. And so what looks bad turns out to be God's way of protecting him. But it doesn't stop there, does it? We, we looked last week at verses 31 and 32. Paul asked the Romans to pray for him that he might be delivered from those who are disobedient in Judea and that his service for Jerusalem might prove acceptable to the saints. Paul says, so that I may come to you in joy by the will of God and find refreshing rest in your company. Well, we saw last week that every part of that prayer was answered, but in ways that Paul couldn't imagine. In particular, he's delivered from these unbelieving Jews by becoming a Roman prisoner. And then he came in joy to Rome in the same way as a Roman prisoner. Much more joy than he would have had if he had come to Rome as a free man. Just to meet the Christians at Rome as a free man would have been a joyous thing. But think of what it must have been like to be as a Roman prisoner walking for miles and miles and have Christians come out from Rome 30 or 40 miles, it was 43 miles to that one part and 33 to the next, Christians had walked out to meet him. What a, I mean, it must have been a tear-filled, joyful, it was joy beyond anything 
that Paul had imagined when he wrote this in Romans. It was something he'd never forget the rest of his life for those Christians to come out there and meet him. But it doesn't stop there either. As far as this mystery of providence and things that look bad being turned for good, um, to see what I'm talking about, we have to turn to Philippians. Now, Philippians was one of what's called the prison epistles. Uh, Paul wrote while he was in prison. The vast majority of scholars down through the centuries have identified the prison that Paul was in when he wrote this with Rome. It was Rome where he was. And you see what um, what I mean when when we read these verses. Philippians 1. Now, you remember Paul got to Rome. He was a prisoner. And it says that he was chained uh, there in Acts 28. So here, here is Philippians chapter 1 and uh, verse 12. Now I want you to know, brethren, that my circumstances have turned out for the greater progress of the gospel, so that my imprisonment in the cause of Christ has become well known. Well known where? Throughout the whole praetorian guard and to everyone else. And that most of the brethren, trusting in the Lord because of my imprisonment, have far more courage to speak the word of God without fear. Now, what was the Praetorian Guard? Well, it was an elite group of soldiers, thousands of them actually, that, that were in Rome, whose job was to guard the emperor. And they, I think it was like a hundred years later, they got so power, powerful that they basically decided who was the emperor. But they were, their job was to guard the emperor. They were the, they were the elite. They were the special forces. Now here's the thing. Paul was chained to one of those soldiers. Think of that. Paul had a captive audience. <laughs> All right. You start talking to this guy, if he doesn't like it, he can't do anything. <laughs> And the soldiers uh, had duties that they rotated, so they trade off to the next soldier and the next soldier. And so Paul had, and think of what it would be like to be chained to the Apostle Paul and to be in the room while he's dictating one of his letters to the churches or when he's witnessing to the Jews. And they knew that he was not anything anything like their normal prisoner because he was not a prisoner because of any crime and they knew that. And the freedoms that he did have, he had a lot more freedoms than a lot of prisoners would have had that was because of that. This gave, what was the result? My imprisonment in the cause of Christ has become well known. Now listen to these words. It's, it's in the cause of Christ. They knew, well, why is he in here? Well, it's because he's the follower of that Nazarene. You know, he says there is a resurrection. And, uh, you know, there's something, there's a strange power about this man, you know. My imprisonment in the cause of Christ has become well known throughout the whole Praetorian Guard. Everywhere, all the way through there. And to everyone else. 
Think of this. The result was, because of him being a prisoner, the result was that the gospel went to places where it never could have come otherwise. And when you get to the end of Philippians, this is Philippians 4.22, Paul says, All the saints greet you, especially those of Caesar's household. (laughs) Saints of Caesar's household. Now, uh, it doesn't mean the royal family as such. That is kind of a technical term for what we might call the imperial civil service or something like that. Servants, um, secretaries, administrators of various sorts. Caesar's household was all that. But it's still incredible. Uh, Christians, especially those from Caesar's household, uh, Rome is here. And uh, Philippi is a colony of Rome. And uh, for some reason, the, the Christians in Caesar's household particularly wanted to greet these Philippian Christians. So the mystery of providence. And it doesn't it sound wonderful after it's over? <laughs> after it's over. <laughs> God used Paul's imprisonment to reach people who would have never been reached otherwise. And we see this all through the Bible and down all of church history. William Hendrickson says this, Thus it has ever been. Joseph cast into a pit and sold into slavery. By and by magnifies God and praises His providence. Israel, pursued by Pharaoh's army, a moment later is heard singing a song of triumph. Job, deprived of his children, earthly goods, and health, arrives at a deeper insight into the mysteries of God's wisdom than ever before. Jehoshaphat, threatened by the Ammonites and Moabites, offers a soul-stirring prayer in the midst of his distress, and there follow praise, victory, and thanksgiving. Jeremiah, cast into a muddy cistern and suffering other afflictions, coins the famous phrase immortalized in Scripture and song, Great is thy faithfulness. Our Lord Jesus Christ, crucified by means of his by crucified by means of his very cross, gains the victory over sin, death, Satan, causing every true believer to exclaim, Far be it from me that I should glory except in the cross of our Lord Jesus Christ. Peter and John in prison become bolder than ever in proclaiming Christ to be the only Savior. The early church scattered abroad improves that very opportunity to go about preaching the Word. Everything just like God's. He moves in mysterious ways His wonders to perform. He plants His footstep in the sea and rides upon the storm. What's that mean? Well, God's actually, you know, when you're in the middle of that storm, it doesn't look like God's anywhere around. Actually, He's the one stirred it up by His footsteps. Deep and unfathomable minds of never-failing skill, He treasures up His bright designs and works His sovereign will. Never-failing skill. You fearful saints, fresh courage take. The clouds you so much dread are big with mercy and will break with blessing on your head. Now, every time one of them comes up, you think, "How this? there's no way this is going to turn into a blessing. 
It looks terrible. How does he say behind? Judge not the Lord by feeble sense, but trust him for his grace. Behind a frowning providence, he hides a smiling face. So we see that with the Apostle Paul, don't we? The mystery of providence unfolded. It says, Blind unbelief is sure to err and scan his works in vain. God is his own interpreter and he shall make it plain. How does he make it plain? As it unfolds. His purposes shall ripen fast, unfolding every hour. The bud may have a bitter taste, but sweet will be the flower. There's a lot contained in that song, isn't there? A lot of truth. May God help us. We have so many examples of seemingly bad things happening that God is working out His will. Let's pray. Lord, we think of that song that says, What more can He say than to you He hath said? And uh, You've given us so many examples in the Bible and so many examples in church history and so many examples in our own lives of turning what appears to be evil into something good. So we pray for help this week to trust You and we pray that You'd help us in the middle of all this to strive in prayer to pour out our hearts before You. Um, We know that... uh, The praying is part of the whole unfolding of the plan and it won't happen without it. Help us in Jesus' name. Amen.